morning we'll be focusing on verses 8 to 11. I think it will be helpful to begin reading in verse 1 to remind us of the context. Children, here are your questions for this morning. First, can anyone be saved by keeping God's law? Two, how does God's law show us that we need a Savior? Three, who is the only one who ever kept God's law perfectly? And four, what is the best way to know if someone is teaching something false in the church? First Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. There ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, our God, we do thank you for your word, and we know that true sound doctrine is found in your scripture, and we know that it's doctrine not only to teach us the truth about you and the truth about ourselves, but also doctrine that's for life, to teach us the way to live our lives for your glory, the very thing for which you created us and recreated us in Christ. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us through your word as we've just read it. And now through the preaching of your word, Lord, we ask for your blessing. So please send your Holy Spirit in a special way to bless the preaching of your word. And we come to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Paul is instructing young Timothy on how to conduct the church. The church is being taught as well how it ought to conduct itself. One of the key components of a solid, healthy church is maintaining sound doctrine. 
maintaining sound doctrine, solid doctrine. And when Paul speaks of scripture and he speaks of doctrine, he's speaking of things that are based not only on the Old Testament scriptures, which are fully in place, but also the way they're fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's essential for Timothy in Ephesus, and in fact in any church that's a true church, to maintain and protect sound doctrine. The problem is, and it's a constant problem, it's been there from the beginning of the church. It was actually there before the church proper, the Christian church, came into being. The problem is with false teachers. False teachers. It's hard to exactly know just how these particular false teachers are misusing the law. We read that they desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. If we were to think about the, the Jewish church, the Jewish Christian church, we recognize that one of the problems they faced were Judaizers. They were saying that, that even Gentiles needed to keep all the ritual laws of the Old Testament. But this group is somewhat different. <clears throat> They're somehow attaching myths and genealogies to their use of the law. But they're very clever and they're doing what any false teachers need to do when they want to infiltrate and affect the church. They have to use scripture to get any credibility. They can't just pick things out of the sky and try to plug it into a church that's at least somewhat knowledgeable about the Old Testament and about the work of Jesus Christ. And so when you see false teaching in the church, it's usually going to be either taking away from scripture or adding to scripture, or in some way, twisting scripture. That third one seems to be the one that they're doing. They're twisting scripture and using the law to make their case. <clears throat> Why do we need to be so careful about doctrine? Some might say we always get so hung up on doctrine. Everybody, at least in some churches, are concerned about doctrine. Some don't care at all, which concerns me a great deal. But why do we get so hung up on doctrine? It's because doctrine teaches us things about eternal life, the faith, right? What is going to last forever? And it teaches us about life, how we spend our lives in the time that God has given us here. There are many other things attached, but if you want to sum it up that way, faith and life. Two pretty big things if you think about it. And so we need to be careful about keeping sound doctrine and fighting against false doctrine. Again, I might not understand exactly how these false teachers are using the law. Their ways will become clearer as we move forward in 1 Timothy. But there is something that I do understand and that we can all understand because it's right here in what Paul says. We can understand first that God's law is good. Secondly, that when it's used lawfully, it's, it's used in a way that pleases God. And third, the law is good because it's also in accord with the good news of the gospel. There's no conflict there. So first of all, God's law is good. We can't cover all the aspects of God's law, but think of the word law itself. Think of law as a set of rules established by authority to be followed. 
And if they're not followed, there's consequences. There might be rewards, but there will certainly be punishments when those rules are broken. When we come to Scripture and the law is given, it's given by the authority of the Almighty God, the supreme authority of God. And and this God calls people to himself. And when he calls the people of Israel to himself, he's going to show them how they're to live. Generally, we understand that there are three components to what is understood as the law in the bigger sense in the Old Testament for the people of Israel. There's the civil law, the way that the nation of Israel is to govern itself. The second is the ceremonial law. Some might call it the ritual law. All those things having to do with sacrifices, the temple, the priests, and all those things that were so important in Old Testament times and so precise and great detail in the Old Testament times. And then there's the moral law, which is summarized, as you know, in the Ten Commandments, and then further summarized in this, love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, breaking down the two parts of the law. So that is the law. Now, in Israel, they're overlapping categories. It's not like they're super distinct categories. The government's this way, the worship is this way, and your morality's that way. No, they overlap. But there's still a distinction. And, and so when, when Christ comes, that, that package deal for the, the people of Israel looks different. Still God's law still have the civil laws, the law for the nation. And it was for the nation because they were a theocracy. And so if you're establishing a theocracy, then, then you would take these laws and apply them to the government. Then there's the ceremonial law. Again, that whole set of things having to do with cleansings and sacrifices and kosher laws and worship the tabernacle and the temple, the priests, and again in great detail. That was all to point to Christ. And so that part of the law is completely obsolete with the coming of Christ. No more need for shedding of blood, no more need for washing with water and all those kinds of things. And so in the light of the coming of Christ, we see that there's a different place for the civil law as the kingdom of God is is now seen as that vast kingdom of God throughout all the earth, over and above and distinct from that old singular nation of Israel, now God's kingdom everywhere on the face of the earth. And now it's the church who applies the laws to its people. So, for instance, church discipline. If somebody breaks God's commands, we don't stone them, we don't execute them, but they do need to be put out of the church. So that's where church discipline comes from. We don't celebrate the Old Testament holidays for any kind of sacred reason. We don't shed blood anymore. We don't have a temple. We don't have a tabernacle. No, those things are done away with. Everything's complete in Christ. But there's no indication that the moral law has ceased. It's addressed a lot in the New Testament. It's it's addressed a great deal. It's reiterated 
Those who are abusing it are corrected. The number one correction that we see throughout the New Testament is Jesus trying to deal with the misapplication of the Sabbath. And he deals with that with the Pharisees. But you see him dealing with that in other places as well, this misapplication of the law. But then you have Jesus taking the law, which, by the way, was never meant to save, even in the Old Testament, and it was never meant to just be a set of standards. It was meant to be on the hearts of the people. Jesus takes it and further applies it to the hearts of the people. You hate your brother? You think, you're, think he's a fool? You're going to call him a fool? Consider the fact that there's murder in your heart. Lusting after someone else who's not your husband or your wife. It's a matter of your heart. You remember Jesus doing that and taking the law and applying it very deeply. Well, it's this law that Paul is addressing. And you'll see why I say that in just a minute. He's not dealing with the civil law. He's not dealing with the ceremonial law. He's dealing with the moral law. But he says that that Timothy... And therefore, he himself and the church has been entrusted with this law. And it's to be upheld, it's to be taught, it's to be preached, it's to be guarded by the church, especially the leaders. What they had was the Old Testament again and the knowledge of the fulfillment of Christ. And the apostles could make authoritative statements having the revelation from God to put it all together and what we end up with is called the gospel. Something that we all cherish. And so the moral laws in view here. It's to be incorporated but not abused as some do. Many churches just want to throw out any form of law from the Old Testament completely. Others want to make it the end all of everything if you just obey you'll be good. Fact of the matter is we need God's law and we'll never obey it completely. So it's God's good law, but it needs to be used lawfully. How is the law used lawfully? Paul says here that the law is not for the just and a big question mark might come in our mind saying, well, well then what does the law have to do with us? We are just. Well, If you have a problem and you think you're just in and of yourself, righteous in and of yourself, then then Paul's going to address your problem in just a moment. But it's not for the just. And what I think might be happening here, and others suggest this as well, that he may be suggesting that the false teachers themselves don't understand that they need the law to point out their sin. They're proud. They think they understand things that they don't understand. Sort of along the lines when Jesus says, I I didn't come, I didn't come for the righteous, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for sinners and I came for the sick. In other words, I didn't come for those who think they're good and think all their ducks are in a row and think they're right for God, I came to save those who are sinners and are in desperate need of salvation. So along those lines. That said, the truly just, the justified in Christ, those for whom the law standards have been met, believers have a different relationship to the law. 
And only believers can truly say, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation day and night. Oh, how I delight in your law, because for everyone else, the law is a curse. For everyone else, the law is a curse. Think of the big picture when God gave the law. It's ironic. We're going to be looking at this a little bit more tonight, a whole different book, a whole different letter. Think of the big picture, though. When did God give his people the Ten Commandments? Was it when they were in Egypt and said, did he say, if you obey these commandments, I'll take you out of Egypt? No, he takes this stubborn and rebellious people out of Egypt, delivers them, shows them deliverance and says, now here's how to live. Here's how to run your government. Here's how to worship appropriately. And here's the moral standard for all y'all. It's after the deliverance. Well, that's true for the believer as well. So in that sense, the law is good for those who seek to obey, who are under grace. That's all the difference. But for those who are not, the law is still good but it's bad news. Think about it in terms of law enforcement. We have some bad laws. We have mostly good laws. There are some bad laws. And we have some bad cops. There are some bad cops. It's all in the news now, right? But the law, at least when it's done the right way in civil government, is for the good of the people, for protection. It's lawbreakers that need to be concerned. And so if somebody breaks the law, if somebody, if somebody charges a police officer, if somebody, if somebody shoots at a police officer, they should expect a response. They should not expect it to be pleasant. They've broken the law. There's punishment. But law-abiding citizens appreciate law enforcement, appreciate sheriffs, appreciate policemen, except for maybe when we get a ticket, when we wish we got a warning. But for the most part, we respect those authorities and we don't have anything to fear if we're law-abiding citizens. The problem is that by nature we break God's law and only by the grace of God has a law been satisfied for believers. But Paul says that the law is for the lawless. Paul describes this about himself in Romans chapter 7 when he talks about the law of covetousness and that he wouldn't have even known he was covetous unless the law had showed him what covetousness was. And so the law was good for this purpose, to show him his sin and to point him to his need for forgiveness. That's why the law is so important for the lawless to see sin as defined by God, to see it's offensive to him, and to see that there's a need for forgiveness and change and reconciliation to a highly offended God. And so Paul gives us a list. He starts by saying that the law, nomos, is for the lawless, ah, nomos. Just simply add an A to the beginning of the Greek word and you have the flip side. You have the law, and then you have the lawless. The disobedient. But now I want us to look briefly at this law. Paul 
works his way down, I think a good argument can be made, through all Ten Commandments. First of all, look at verses 9 to 10. Back in our passage. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for those unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, this might be stating the obvious. But it reminds us that the law is just not something on stone or on paper, but it has to do with real live people. You look at the law, you shall not murder. Paul brings it home, murderers. You shall not commit adultery, adulterers. These are real people doing real things. The first four commandments seem to be covered under the blanket or the umbrella of this whole idea of lawlessness, disobedience, ungodly, and sinners. Other gods, imaginations about God and making idols, using his name in vain, disregarding the Sabbath, all under those first four. But then he gets very specific about the second law, second part of the law. Gross violations. Our larger catechism expands a great deal on each one of the commands, by the way. But he goes down this list, and they should sound familiar to you if you know the commandments. First of all, those who are, get this, murderers. I don't like to throw out much Greek, but you'll hear patraloas, patre, murderers of fathers, metraleos, mater, mother murderers, who are very obviously not honoring their fathers and their mothers, but a direct violation of God's command. Then murderers, killing of innocent human beings, strikers, taking lives of innocent human beings, murderers. Sexually immoral. The word behind that is pornos. All kinds of sexual immorality, adultery included. But then it's very interesting what Paul does. For some reason, he doesn't just put the next category as some nebulous thing under sexual immorality. He specifically points out homosexuality. Some would say sodomites, this idea of homosexuality, giving away natural relations for men to have relations with men and women with women and every distorted, twisted thing in that whole category. I was intrigued by this. I never even knew it was in my computer, but when you go to do spell check, there is a category in there called inclusiveness. 
to correct your language. So when I was correcting my notes, it picked out homosexuality. And it said that it would probably be better, I'm putting words in its mouth, but basically, probably be better to use same-gender attraction or same-gender relationship. And I thought to myself, they're defeating their own purpose because they're actually broadening the category. And in the context of what Paul is saying here about God being against this kinds of things, that little spell check thing is broadening the category of what's condemned by God. Then Paul says there are men stealers, enslavers, The worst kind of thievery is thieving another human being. It's still stunning how it took so long for many to figure out that that was wrong. And then liars, in other words, perjurers. Someone might say, well then, what happened to the 10th commandment, covetousness? And the fact of the matter is, covetousness is is sort of a summary of all the commandments. Where Paul elsewhere says, covetousness is idolatry. So why point out all these sins? Why does the law point out all these sins? Even to unbelievers, it's it's with a gospel intent to show them their need for forgiveness, mediation to show that they're convicted sinners in need of a mediator, and it's to point them to Christ. Not to beat down sinners, but to help them to see themselves for who they are and to look up in desperation to God for salvation. He's the only one who can save. Does it ever amaze you that the very God who is absolutely offended by sin is the very same God who provides salvation? He's the only one who can do it, and he does it through his son. So that shows us that it's perfectly in accord with the good news. The backdrop of the good news of the gospel is the whole Old Testament. We have the complete picture in Christ. And when Christ came, there was a dramatic change But it's all one package deal. It's all this plan of redemption. It's all this plan of salvation put together from Genesis to Revelation. It's all his word and God does not contradict himself. He's the same God. It's all his word. So we're to see it as fulfillment, not disregard, not rejection. It's one word. God has spoken from Genesis to Revelation. And the same Ten Commandments were sent by God, the same God who sent his only begotten Son. He's the same God. I think a key verse to this whole thing is where John starts his gospel. He simply says this. If you want the passage, John 1, 17 
The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See the continuity. The law is God's law. Christ is God's Christ. It's it's the fulfillment of what God has provided for salvation. The word of the law and the word incarnate, both gifts from God. There's no conflict. And so if you have the grace of God in your life and you're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, you can love the law and enjoy it. If not, you need to understand that you're currently under the weight of condemnation. Because if you've broken one, you've broken them all. So here we are, we say to ourselves, then, then should Christians concern themselves with the law? The moral law. Do you love God? Then you can love his commandments. In fact, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The author of Hebrews and reflecting on Jeremiah says, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and their minds. In their minds, I will write them. If you want to see a grand celebration of the law, read through Psalm 119. Every imaginable word for the law is given in celebration of what God has given in his scriptures. So I refer just briefly to the Heidelberg Catechism that asks this very good question. Can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? The answer is no, in this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of disobedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. Another question. If in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly? The answer is two. First, that throughout our life we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Secondly, that we may be zealous for good deeds and constantly pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit that he may more and more renew us after God's image until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. See, God's people love, or at least should love, his righteousness and be in pursuit of it. They have a new inclination as new creations to desire now to obey the Lord and to honor him. Well, when we come across stuff like this, it's always good for us to to examine ourselves and to see where we are. The Ten Commandments is a pretty good place to start. When we look at our lives and we wonder if we're really in pursuit of God's righteousness in our lives, ask yourself, do you have other gods? Do you have idols in your life or imaginations about something that 
would be your God that really isn't God? You're careful about the way you live your life. You bear the name of Jesus. You bear the name of Christ as a Christian. Do you guard your tongue when it comes to using the Lord's name? Have you worked through Have you worked through the issue of the Lord's Day Sabbath? Have you wrestled with that? Have you thought about the authorities in your life, particularly your mothers and your fathers, but all authorities as well? Have you thought about how you relate to them? You thought about your heart and your inclination towards your brothers and even your enemies. Is there any murderous spirit? Is there any form of sexual immorality In your life, do you cheat? Do you steal? Do you covet? You know, we are before the throne of grace. Knowing forgiveness, knowing the grace of God, knowing his his demands of his law have been met for our sakes through Jesus Christ. But that should compel us to love his law, love his righteousness, love his holiness all the more. Part of our growth in grace is to learn more and more to love what God loves, to hate what God hates, and to own that for ourselves. And so we can understand law and grace together. Law and grace together. Love, study, and embrace what God desires and commands for his people. Our salvation is all in Christ. But he's working in us what's pleasing to him. May we be his willing subjects and children. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you have spoken. You've spoken to us from the beginning down to this very day by giving us your holy scriptures. We thank you that in the whole counsel of your word, you teach us the wonderful truth about redemption, salvation for sinners like us. Lord, you teach us all that we need to know to glorify you, all that we need to know for faith and salvation and how to live our lives for you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to have a deep passion for what you have spoken, to cherish, to own, 